0: Welcome to the Startup Grind podcast. Startup Grind is the world's largest startup community, inspiring, educating and connecting millions of entrepreneurs across the globe. These are the stories of disruptors, innovators and game changers from the fastest high growth companies and venture capital firms in existence. Join us as we unpack their strategies, learn from their mistakes and grow together. There is no time to wait, so let's begin. This episode is brought to you by Oracle for Startups.
1: Hey all, welcome back, Startup Grind Global Podcast. This is Chris Joniu, and today you're in for a treat. We've got the big dog, Brad Feld. Famous, it's famous this guy. American entrepreneur, author, blogger, venture capitalist, the Foundry Group. what's the co-founder of Techstars. And um, he's joining us today um, as we geek out on community and talk about his new book, um startup community way. Definitely worth a read, check it out. Um, particularly anyone that's, you know, familiar with Broadfeld's books and loved any of the past, um, reading any of the past books he's done. Um, yeah, he kind of evolves his theory a little bit and and talks about how communities can thrive. Um and we recorded this live um, as a live event with people tuning in from all around the world. It was really cool and um, We dig in a little bit into how startups communities can improve, collaborate, and particularly in these rapid evolving, complex environments we find ourselves in. Um, Ain't that the truth? Enjoy. Brad, welcome today. Welcome to
0: everyone that's joining us from around the world. Um, You know, this is a, a, a topic that's near and dear to our heart, you know, and I'm sure we've got a bunch of community fans on the line as well, but before we do that, for anyone that's not familiar with with Bradfeld and, and your history, can I can I go back a little bit? This is usually a question I ask on the podcast. Um and that's you know, can you can you tell me about where you grew up and, and a little bit around um I usually start with a question, was there
2: a mother or father that was an entrepreneur? Uh I grew up in Dallas, Texas. Uh I was actually born in Blyville, Arkansas, which uh, is, you know, sort of one of those little known facts. My dad was in the Air Force during the Vietnam War. He's a doctor. And um, from age three forward, I grew up in Dallas, and then I went to college in Boston or Cambridge, at MIT. Lived there for a while, and then in 1995, moved to Boulder, Colorado with my wife, Amy. Um, both my parents were entrepreneurs in their own right. My dad was a doctor. But he started one of the very first uh, clinical endocrinology practices in the United States. Uh, when he started practicing medicine, uh, endocrinology, which today uh, is very well understood, was not, Uh, it was very academic. And I think there are, you know, I don't know, a thousand endocrinologists in the U.S. but they almost all work for either teaching hospitals or universities doing research. Uh, So when he moved to Dallas, he he was one of the very first, there were probably about a dozen or so endocrinologists around the U.S. that started private practices. And when he retired, his practice was about a $10 million a year uh, business, you know, a number of partners. And they had, I don't know, 50 or 75 people working for him and a laboratory that they ran testing and a bunch of other things. So, you know, I I grew up with him as a a medical doctor, but really starting his own business. Um, uh, my mom's an artist and she's been an artist her whole adult life. Uh, she taught, uh, some, some university level art courses, uh, for a period of time, not that long, maybe four or five years. Um, but she's been a professional artist and as a professional artist, um, she'll make a joke every now and then that if she wasn't married to a doctor, she'd be a starving artist. Um, but you know, she promoted herself, she promoted her work. Uh, she had galleries, she had shows, uh, she went through a couple of different phases. Uh, she started a line of clothing uh, that were painted kimonos that I think was just a little bit ahead of its time, but it, it had like a, a blip of, of excitement. So I, I sort of grew up in this household with two parents uh, who were equal partners in their marriage. So in their relationship, they were equals, which is very powerful for me, both in terms of how I. Uh, interact with my wife, Amy, uh, and how we handle our relationship, but just sort of identifying with both of my parents as, um, you know, people who were deciding what they wanted to do and going after it. It's worth noting my dad's father was also an entrepreneur. He's uh, 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 an immigrant from the Russia-Austria border. It's a little unclear whether it was Russia or Austria um or hungry depending on sort of where the where the geographic lines in that part of the world were drawn at any given time it's a place called Bresny, and uh, brezny and um he ran a clothing business in uh, miami flor in new york for a while when he, when he grew up and then uh, ultimately moved to miami florida Did there my mother's father was also an entrepreneur he was uh, a russian from kiev uh, illegal immigrants into the US. He came to the US via Kiev to Europe, uh, as a young boy, like 14 or 15, escaping the period of time in Russia where they were exterminating all the Jews and around to Cuba and then into the US, got kicked out of the US, came back to the US second time, eventually married my grandmother, got a citizenship and he had a painting business, a commercial painting business. So painting buildings and other sorts of things. So just, you know, I, I kind of came from a family that was, um, uh, you know, not of money, uh, but everybody was your classic American immigrant and willing to put energy into what was interesting to them to try to make a better life for their kids.
0: And and, and you know, this kind of the age-old question of um, is entrepreneurship in the blood or yeah. can it be taught?
2: Let's yes is you. the answer it's both um uh i think that there are a lot of a lot of uh, internal characteristics or innate characteristics that are positives in the context of entrepreneurship and some that are negative so i think that you know there there definitely are char- human characteristics that you you know you whether you're born with them or you develop them because your environment it's a whole different argument but but individually we have characteristics that lend towards entrepreneurship but then there's an enormous amount that can be learned and, you know, 30 years ago uh, when I was starting my first company, there wasn't much content available around anything. Um, and, and when I say 30 years ago, I, I, I'm not being uh, I'm not getting it right. I was really about to turn 55. I was 19. So it would be 36 years ago. It kind of makes me uncomfortable, um, but, you know, like I could read books about people like Lee Iacocca. Uh, or uh, Henry Ford in the U.S. And, you know, these were not really entrepreneurial stories. These were sort of biographies about very, very successful business people who may have had part of their career was entrepreneurial, but they didn't really teach anything. It just sort of good role models. Um, I was involved in the 80s uh, when I was in school, and then in the early 90s in the creation of the MIT Entrepreneurship Center and some of the early courses around entrepreneurship at a college level. And of course, today, you know, it's not just university entrepreneurship, but it's whole ways of being an entrepreneur, either conceptually and philosophically or functionally. If you think about Eric Ries and Steve Blank and the whole arc of Lean Startup, uh, you think about accelerators like Techstars and sort of just the enormous amount of content that exists, not just that you get from participating in a community like Techstars or Startup Grindr, uh Just enormous amount of learning from your peers. Um, one last comment on this is I, I was uh, exposed to learning from your peers very early in my first company. Um, I joined an organization. I was about the hundredth member of an organization called Young Entrepreneurs Organization, which today is just called Entrepreneurs Organization. And it was for people who were starting companies. You had to be a founder, you had to be under 40, and your business had to be a million or more in revenue. And today, it's 25,000 people around the globe. Um, It's modeled and a sister organization, a young president's organization, which is a little bit better well-known. But again, like Startup Grind, like Founders Institute, like Techstars, it's a very, very powerful affinity group dynamic with peers, where you learn from other peers, and in this way, that is learning and teaching about entrepreneurship.
0: Can you can you uh, just quickly on on the on the background? So I think just quickly, you know, glance over your bio and talk about just your entrepreneurial journey, and then I want to kind of focus on a boulder after that, and and what I would imagine is this kind of very grassroots thing, you know, it's quite a famous city now as an entrepreneurial ecosystem. But I I'd like to hear like, yeah, first about your your entrepreneurial evolution and and then how bold it kind sure. of I'll try to well. do
2: mine with like bullet points because I've told my story seventeen thousand three hundred and forty one times and I'm mostly just bored right. of listening to me talk. Um uh but the bullet point version would be uh in high school um my father uh had a patient who was an entrepreneur In the mini computer business and my dad would take me out to lunch with him about once a quarter when i was a teenager Uh, and that was super powerful to me because it introduced me to the idea not just of entrepreneurship but of an entrepreneur um, while i was in my 14 15 16 years old Um, uh, my year uh, my year between my junior and senior year of of high school i spent the summer in in uh, london uh, working for a, a company called Centronics that has since disappeared, but was a very important uh, computer a printer company that invented what used to be called the parallel port. For anybody who's old on this, you'll remember the way that you connected a computer was to the parallel port. And I worked for some people in that organization that were very entrepreneurial, and I wrote software that was used by them. So that was a small, small, biz, small business at that point. And then my Senior year between uh, college and or uh, high school and college, I worked for a husband-wife startup called Petcom. I was their first employee. They grew to about 20 people. I didn't get equity in the business, but I got paid an hourly wage. So I learned pretty quickly if I worked more hours, I got paid more money. Um, But I also got 5% royalty on all the software I wrote. So I learned pretty powerfully the the leverage that you get from having an ownership in what you're doing versus just getting a wage. Um, I started several companies in college that failed, two in particular, before starting a third one in college that ended up being my first successful company. It's called Feld Technologies. Not very creatively named after my dad. Uh, we self-funded the business. There were three, three partners, my dad, a guy named Dave Joke, and me. Uh, I own 60%, uh, Dave owned 30, my dad owned 10. And we started it with 10 shares of stock. And when we sold the business seven years later to a public company, we still had 10 shares of stock. So, fortunately, they were worth more than a dollar. That's how much we funded the company with at the beginning, ten dollars. But that was profound for me because I really, you know, neither Dave nor I knew anything about starting or running a business. And so we really just learned by doing. Um, I sold that business to a public company in 1993. I worked for that public company for a couple of years and, did, and two things happened. One was I ended up on the acquisition deal team. They did a lot of acquisitions. And I worked for the co-chairman of this public company helping on the acquisition team. I also made 40 angel investments between 1994 and 1996 with most of the money that I made from the sale of the first first I bought a house and, and then made a bunch of 25 and $50,000 investments as an angel investor didn't know anything about investing, didn't know anything about buying or selling companies. All of that then uh, sort of emerged from that process. And I accidentally ended up then becoming part of a venture team affiliated with what was then a not a very well-known Japanese company called SoftBank that was just starting to buy companies and make investments in the U.S. They ran out of money in 1997, and we ended up, a, a subset of us, me and three other people that worked for SoftBank, uh, started a firm that was sponsored by SoftBank called SoftBank Venture Capital and became called Mobius Venture Capital. We actually had a business in Australia, one of the investments that I made in 1999 maybe that some people here, if you again, if you're old, you might remember, called Asia Online. Uh, we did a consolidation of ISPs in Australia, New Zealand, a few in Italy a few in China, sorry, not Italy, uh, India, a few in China, Shenzhen, we had one. Um, but most of the business was in Australia, um, it's headquartered in Hong Kong. You know, it, when the Internet bubble burst, it it fell apart and we sold most of those businesses back to the or gave the business back to the founders of the various companies we bought from. Um, so I had this venture capital experience that was extremely rapid rise up. Uh, over a three or four-year period in the late 90s, and then a collapse over a 24-month period uh, around the collapse of the internet bubble. I'd also started a handful more companies. I was co-chairman of two public companies. I was a co-founder of one of those two companies that ended up having a peak market cap about $3 billion, When that was a huge market cap for a tech company. Uh, It peaked in 2000, went bankrupt in 2002. Uh, It was a web hosting company that became an application service provider, sort of a precursor to a SaaS-based business. So I had a lot of successes and a lot of failures in this time period. Um, I fought my way through that with Mobius, which we are just now in 2020, finally shutting down. Uh, We've liquidated the last of the funds. And in 2006, I co-founded Techstars. In 2007, I co-founded Foundry Group, which is a venture firm I'm part of today. We've got about two and a half billion dollars under management, 75% of our capital direct investments in other companies, 25% in other early stage venture funds. Um, uh, the other couple of bullet points, I moved to Boulder with my wife, Amy Batchelor in 1995 from Boston, um, Boston was very good to us, but it wasn't home. We didn't know anybody. And we knew one guy in Boulder, he moved away six months later. So we really just moved to Boulder as a place to live, sort of the idea of, you know, if you were to live anywhere in the world, where would you be? And our view was if we didn't like it, we'd move somewhere else. And uh, fell in love with it and decided that Boulder was home. Uh, and, you know, we've lived there ever since, last 25 years. We split our time between Boulder and Aspen. I'm in Aspen right now. And there's a few places on planet Earth that we would move to uh, and consider living in. Um, Amy loves Paris. And we spent a lot of time over the years in Paris. But in terms of really living, um, uh, Iceland is quite interesting. I have several good friends there and I've always really liked Iceland. Uh, And we have lots of time we spend in Alaska. I have a number of good friends in Australia. So Australia's uh, the other on the list. Um, I spent a decent amount of time in Adelaide. I spent some time in Melbourne. Um, So, you know, really South South Australia, Uh, uh, you know, to, to sort of some degree in a little Victoria. Um, and that's about it. Like we're, we're, uh, we had no, just last on me, no kids. Uh, we love dogs, I'm a big golden retriever. Uh, and, you know, while COVID, I think it's been hard on many dimensions. Uh, the two of us love being together. I, I used to travel all the time. It's delightful to spend 24 hours a day with the person you were put on planet earth to be with. So that's, that's the, the shorter version of it.
0: That's nice. Um, um, all right, now, um, can you please talk about Boulder, Colorado, and as, as particularly in the context of um, community?
2: Sure. I moved to Boulder in 1995. Um, if you've read uh, my first book about startup communities, called Startup Community, uh, of which uh, I just came out with a second edition in conjunction with the new book, The Startup Community Way. I talk a lot about uh, Boulder and the, the arc and the dynamics in Boulder and that um, the couple things that I, I point out from my own experience is when I moved to Boulder in 1995, there definitely was startup activity. I, I, I did not, I was not at the beginning of startups in Boulder. Boulder, you know, as a town started in the uh, late 1800s, early 1900s. Um, Uh, It developed, sort of had its ups and downs. In the 1950s, uh, two things happened that were really significant. One was the United States federal government established several government labs uh, in Boulder. Uh, One of them is a really important one. Well, they're all important, but one's a commerce lab where the atomic clock is housed. So when you hear people talk about the atomic clock and time, like there's foundational activity around that in Boulder, Colorado. Uh, There's a couple of other also important US-based labs there. So sort of a government research lab dynamic. And then the University of Colorado at Boulder, uh, which is the best, uh, probably the best university in Colorado, best research university for sure in Colorado, top 20 research university in the US. And that really laid the groundwork for uh, a bunch of smart people and now multiple generations of PhDs, Uh, professors, and people sort of working in government and advanced research being in one place. Second, um, you had hippies. So I like to describe Boulder as the place in the United States where all the hippies going from the West Coast to the East Coast in the 1960s, sorry, East Coast to the West Coast, when they ran out of gas in Colorado near Boulder, they're like, wow, this is a pretty good place to hang out and get stoned all the time. And they stayed. And so you have this very sort of counterculture creative hippie vibe, Western US mountain vibe, which if you don't know it, uh, is very independent, very frontier spirit, very, in in a lot of ways, very similar to, I think, a lot of the cultural norms in in lots of uh, Australia. Uh, And then you have this sort of integrated into that, um, uh, the university, plus then much of the outdoor uh, fitness community, around a couple of things, um, um, road biking, mountain biking, and long distance running ended up sort of congregating in Boulder because of both the resources available and the elevation. Um, So you had just this, this confluence of amazing stuff. And Richard Florida wrote a book in 1992. He's one of the people that's inspired a lot of my startup communities thinking. And his book was The Rise of the Creative Class. And if you haven't read it, it's well worth it. Um, and I see Mark mentioning NIST, um, you know, NIST is the, uh, is one of the key labs. NOAA, N-O-A-A, uh, is another one that's in Boulder. NREL, uh, N-R-E-L, um, uh, is a National Research Energy Laboratory, another one. So, like, again, this confluence of things. The Richard Florida book basically said you want this collision of creative people and smart people. Basically, you want, you know, I like to say you want if you have your cliches in high school, right, the kids that sat out uh, in the parking lot and got stoned and and the artists uh, and and then all the brainiacs like you want them colliding uh, and doing interesting things. And that's what you have with Boulder. And so when I moved there in 95, you had tech companies, uh, you had the natural foods industry had really started in Boulder. And uh, many major companies uh, have emerged from there. Because of the university, uh, there's a lot of biotech uh, uh, and life sciences uh, companies. And you had this culture that was very independent. So it wasn't like a big company, company town thing. It was lots of little companies. However, it was extremely fragmented. There was no sort of center to it Um, geographically. Even though Boulder downtown was like 10 by 10 blocks, maybe not even that, 15 by 10 blocks. So pretty small downtown. And Boulder itself is only about 100,000 people in the city. All of these companies were in the suburbs surrounding the city. There are office parks and all this sort of thing. So there just wasn't a lot of focused energy. Um, The internet bubble was actually quite energizing for Boulder because of the collision between. technology, internet, and creative creativity and digital media. Um, the collapse in the internet bubble, uh, you know, in everywhere was was pretty intense. Um, but uh, then what you had as an emergence from that uh, in 2003, 2004 was you had people just getting back to work at new companies. And so you had this very rapid emergence. Uh, 2003, 4, 5 of new companies as the wave of Web 2.0 was starting. It's, it's useful to note, and, and I see Steve tossed up a comment there about um, IBM. Um, IBM, uh, s- several companies had very big facilities in Colorado. IBM was one, HP was another that had a big facility in Fort Collins. Um, there was a big telecom presence in Denver, which is about 45 minutes away from Boulder. are very complementary to each other, even though Denver is about 20 times the size. And a lot of the startup activity came from that kind of stuff. So two of the foundational businesses prior to me uh, in Boulder were a company, two companies called Storage Tech and Exabyte, uh, and one from Fort Collins was called Colorado Memory Systems. Another company people might remember was Connor Peripherals. Um, these were all companies that had roots in, uh, in, in sort of the Boulder corridor between Denver and Fort Collins. And many of them had linkages back to either HP or IBM. If you fast forward to today, um, what you have is you have a very, very uh, bottoms up integrated startup community. Many, many companies that have been created, some very significant ones. Um, uh, you know, uh, uh, until about 2013 or so, there was a, a lot of people would say after my first book came out, yeah, Boulder's cute, but it's only 100,000 people. You'll never be able to build big companies there. And then uh, in a one year period, something called a phase transformation happened. And three companies had massive exits. Rally software went public. Um, Rally's a company uh, for Australians that competed with Atlassian early on with one of their products. Atlassian uh, uh, product Jira was a direct competitor of Rally's core product. And I would say, in hindsight and with the benefit of time, Atlassian kicked Rally's ass. Um, but but Rally was a very important company in the creation of agile software development. Another was a company called Zayo, which recently went private for $14 billion and was one of the most important new companies in fiber in the world, uh, in fiber infrastructure. And then a company called DataLogix, which got bought by Oracle for $1.2 billion when that was a lot of money. So you had in this 12 month period, this phase transformation where before everybody's like, yeah, Boulder's cute. And then immediately after, like, oh, I see, there's real stuff happening there. Um, Another company people might know uh, would be SendGrid. And uh, SendGrid, which now is part of Twilio, went through one of the early Techstars programs, uh, grew in Boulder, expanded to Denver, ultimately uh, consolidated all its operations in Denver, and now is a, a very large part of Twilio. If you look today, though, you see Twitter having a major office in Boulder because of an acquisition of a company called Gnip. Uh, Google, having a very large presence in Boulder, I think they're probably up to almost 1,500 or 2,000 people now, they started their presence in Boulder through an acquisition of a company called At Last uh, in 2004-2005, and I could keep going, right? There's a a big Amazon presence now, Uh, there's a decent Apple presence. Um, And uh, Oracle uh, has continuous presence in and around because of a number of companies they've acquired. Cisco acquired a company has large presence um uh and you know sun microsystems which brought storage tech which got papa oracle you, you just end up having this sort of um what i like to say is is recirculation uh or recycling of people and learning and knowledge as that startup community has continued to grow but also as part of a broader extended entrepreneurial ecosystem that does include many other companies 25 years later it's very very different than it was 25 years ago um, but it had a lot of the seeds planted in the 60s and the 70s and so it wasn't like something that emerged overnight
0: I ask now like you know, basically because you wrote you know the first book on startup communities and and, and now the way anyway, how is, like your definition or you know of, of startup community and community building change and can you talk a little bit around uh, the philosophy of the new book?
2: Yeah, a couple of things that are changed. I made some mistakes in the first book. So in the second edition, I fixed them. Uh, and in the new book, we created some precision. So I, I just want to i will use two examples. Um, one is just the phrase startup communities itself. Um, prior to the first book, the phrase didn't exist. And um, uh, I'm very happy that the phrase has become a canonical phrase in entrepreneurship and that people sort of relate to startup community and what a startup community is. Um, Over the eight years since I wrote the first book, um, prior to the first book, there wasn't a good phrase for it. Every now and then you would hear the phrase entrepreneurial ecosystem, but you'd hear all kinds of things like innovation cluster, research this, or people would say, we want to build the next Silicon Valley. Like none of that was very helpful uh, in terms of focusing people on what this thing was. Um, But over time, increasingly um, two phrases were getting conflated. And those two phrases were startup communities and entrepreneurial ecosystems. So you'd hear people call them startup ecosystems and you'd hear people call them entrepreneurial communities or just use them as substitutes. So in the second book, we define, and we have a whole chapter separating a startup community, which is a nucleus within the geography from an entrepreneurial ecosystem. And the best way to sort of focus on it is there is only one goal for a startup community. One goal, and that's to help entrepreneurs succeed. That's it. And so whenever you're engaging with the startup community, whatever you're doing, the goal is to help entrepreneurs succeed. That is very different than an entrepreneurial ecosystem. Entrepreneurial ecosystem has lots of actors in it who as one of their goals is to help entrepreneurs succeed. And they do that by engaging with the startup community. But they may have other goals, whether it's you know large companies or economic development or nonprofits or the university. And they may have other goals around the startup community that are not helping entrepreneurs succeed. And so those goals really fit in this bigger container of the entrepreneurial ecosystem. It's not to say that the goals are bad. They're just different. And an example of that would be, creating jobs. Every person I've ever talked to in economic development, in government, city or state or country level government, if I ask them, what are your goals for the startup community? One of them is to create more jobs. If I then go talk to an entrepreneur and say, hey, do you need help creating more jobs? Entrepreneur says, "Uh uh-uh. That's what I do as an outcome of my work. Like I'm an entrepreneur. I create a company, we create jobs. I need a lot of help attracting the right people, getting the right kinds of people educated, making it easier for people or more attractive for people to move to the city. Um, that's very different than, quote, creating jobs. So by focusing on this nucleus startup community that has a singular goal of helping entrepreneurs succeed, I think with the new book, uh, we've, we've created some good focus there. Another example, if you looked at the first book, is I separated the world into leaders and feeders. I said, entrepreneurs have to be the leaders. Everybody else is a feeder. And that was a mistake. I just, I made two mistakes there. One was the words because um, leaders and feeders, I viewed them as equally important, just different, but I created a hierarchy. A lot of people viewed the feeders as less important than the leaders. And they're just not, they're different. I was trying to make a point of, unless you have a critical mass of entrepreneurs playing leadership roles, in your startup community, your startup community is not going to make progress. In this new book, and I went back and fixed it in the second edition, we added a new phrase, instigator. And an instigator is somebody who works for a feeder that is a leader in the startup community. So instead of in, instead of feeders being people and organizations, the feeders are now just organizations. So if you're a government, university, Nonprofit supporting entrepreneurship, large company, venture capital firm, service provider, you're you're a feeder. Uh, Techstars, feeder. Startup grind, feeder. However, participants in those organizations can be leaders in the startup community. They're instigators. And so this notion of saying the leaders are entrepreneurs and instigators. And then the organizations play a different role in trying to separate them apart. So those are examples of things that have sort of changed, evolved, gotten crisper. I I just didn't give voice in that first book, and it was my mistake, uh, to people who play uh, a leadership role in startup community development uh, and and ecosystem development who are not entrepreneurs themselves. Um, The new book. Uh, Ian Hathaway, my co-author, and I put a lot of energy into trying to create, and it took us a while. We had, it really didn't click in until uh, the second iteration. We actually wrote a book and then threw away the first draft. Uh, we started with a blank piece of paper once we came up with the metaphor, the framing for it. We, we cut and pasted plenty of stuff from the first draft, but we literally just started over. And then the third iteration was we reorganized the whole book. Uh, in November of two, 2019 after getting a lot of feedback on it. It was just, it was it was too hard to read. It was too dense of a start You get to chapter three. And if you could get through chapter four or five, there was an enormous amount of good stuff in it, but it was just too hard to get through it. We did two things. One is we came up with a metaphor of a complex adaptive system uh, as the way to think about what a startup community is. And we shortened that to complex system. So, simply put, a startup community is a complex system. I'm going to define that with an example in 30 seconds. Uh, The second, and the reason we reorganized the book in November was, of 2019, is we started the book with, you know, an introduction, but then we had a couple of chapters explaining what complex systems were. And essentially, you, you started the book, you slammed into this pretty hard thing to process that you might or might not have been interested in before you then got into how it applied to startup communities. And what we did is we took that section of the book and we turned it on its side and we broke it up into lots of little pieces and we sort of strung it horizontally through the book. So the book's about startup communities and we incorporated ideas from complexity theory and language from complex system throughout the book rather than, you know, front loading it. Our goal with it, sort of in hindsight, was to help people think about the growth and development and the evolution of a startup community. Um, Let me give you the example so that you know what a complex system is for those of you who say, I think I know, or maybe I don't know, or what is a complex system? There are three types of systems. A simple system, a complicated system, and a complex system. A simple system is making a cup of coffee. You put beans and water in, you run a recipe, you get coffee out. Might not be good coffee. You can modify the recipe a little, put different types of beans in, put milk, sugar in. But it's a beginning and end, a recipe with a deterministic outcome: a cup of coffee. A complicated system is doing your monthly financial statements. Lots more inputs, uh, lot, lots more steps. Lots more things that are in different orders, but there's still a recipe. And what you get out of this deterministic system called your monthly financial statements are a balance sheet, income statement, and cash flow statement. And you get them every month. And they're the same and they read the same. The numbers are different, but the thing is the same. And you actually can understand your business through that. So, beginning and deterministic system. Chris, you have children, and all of us here, because you said you're in the basement. All of us here have either been children or have children. Raising a child is a complex adaptive system. When the child is born, if on day one you said, this is the playbook I'm applying to raising this child. And when this child is 25 years old, they're going to be interested in these things. They're going to eat this kind of food. They're going to be in this kind of relationship. They're going to live here. They're going to cut their hair this way. They're going to play these sports. They're going to be interested to play this instrument, like all you're doing is setting your kid up for tons and tons of therapy. What you learn is that the important thing about raising a child is not the individual pieces along the way, but the interaction, not the parts, but the interaction between the parts. And all the things you do for the the kid, um, all the inputs generate outputs, which generate new inputs, and they're constantly changing. That's how a startup community works. You don't have a playbook, you don't have a recipe, you don't have a beginning and an end. The parts themselves, number of companies, amount of money raised, size of outcomes, number of VCs, number of jobs, measuring that stuff's kind of interesting, but it's not important. What's important is the interaction between all those parts. And measuring the value of the interaction between those parts is really difficult. And that's one of the reasons why we have a chapter in the book, chapter 11, called The Measurement Trap, Um, why it's so hard to actually understand cause and effect in a startup community, understand what you should be measuring. And we're so programmed from the cliche in business that gets sourced back to Peter Drucker, you know, if you don't measure it, you can't manage it. And and the real the real line is, if you don't measure the right things, you can't manage them. If you measure crap, it doesn't matter if you measure unimportant things. It doesn't matter. But if you don't measure the right things, it can matter a lot. Well, in startup communities, the right things to measure are really hard to find. So we've woven all of this into the book. There's, again this notion around complexity theory. Not again to try to give people a treatise on complexity theory, but to help people have new language around how a startup community develops and evolves. It's interesting, um, I wouldn't have predicted that a startup, uh, that the book would have come out in the midst of the collision of multiple complex systems. The COVID crisis is is literally the collision of multiple complex systems. It's a health crisis, and uh, for those of you that uh, are in uh, uh, Australia, uh, I, Chris and I were checking in advance, right? And like the notion of going uh, through lockdown, uh, then you know, being in a place where you have no deaths, no cases, like managing all of that. And you look at how you manage that against how other people manage that uh, in different parts of the world. And there's a lot of very interesting things to understand about how you manage or don't manage uh, a complex system. But that crisis, the COVID crisis, which by the way, and in, inhabits a lot of language from complexity theory, contagion, positive and negative feedback loops, the idea of geometric curves, the idea of phase shifts, where things look a certain way and then suddenly they're different, time delays. I think one of the hardest things for human beings in this is to understand that this disease can be invisible for 14 days, but you can still be infecting other people. It's just really hard to process that and recognize that whatever you're measuring today, you, you kind of have a measurement 14 days from now that's really reflective of what's going on today. So you don't know today what's happening for 14 days, really. And then the death curve uh, delays from that 15 to 30 days. So a lot of people say, oh, well, you know, we're not out in lockdown anymore. But the cases aren't accelerating. Well, wait a second, Like you got a time delay here. Or, yeah, there's a lot more cases, but not as many people are dying. Wait a second. You know, that, you know, you got to sort of understand this notion of a time delay. All of these things are essential in complexity theory. The health crisis generated an economic crisis. We had a very strong economy prior to COVID. That economic crisis is amplifying a mental health crisis globally. We're not used to being in our houses 24 hours a day, seven days a week, independent of the massive inequities that are occurring in the US. We see it instantiated. One of them is this racial uh, racial equity crisis that's been around since the beginning of the United States, but is also a complex system as part of this collision. But even if you think about the economic crisis, the inequity between some people who have generated massive wealth during this time period, many companies that are many companies that are benefiting meaningfully from COVID remote learning, video conferencing, telemedicine, home delivery, things like that. And then at the other end of the spectrum, companies that are literally vanishing from the face of the earth, whole industries, because this crisis and COVID is so detrimental to them. So like all of these things are complex systems and sort of having a frame of reference on how this stuff collides and how that applies to entrepreneurship and the growth and development of startup communities, um, but also of startups can be very, very powerful.
3: A startup's AI platform aims to help ER doctors triage possible heart attack patients faster and easier, saving everyone the pain of numerous expensive tests. Hi, it's Mike Stiles and this is Meet the Startups for the week of November 18th, brought to you by Oracle for Startups. Did you know it's not that easy to detect a heart attack, even for doctors? Even in 2020, many other things act or feel like heart attacks, from reflux to pulled rib muscles. ER physicians order up a battery of tests to pin down exactly what's happening and what the best course of treatment should be. That kind of evaluation costs thousands. Heart.io founders Utkars Jane and Adam Butchie had a better idea. What if you took data from electrocardiograms to develop learning algorithms that could identify arterial stenosis and make individualized predictions? The startup is now building an inexpensive cloud-based tool to help providers better assess risk and make admission decisions. The technology is not cleared for commercial use in the US yet, but has been designated a breakthrough device. And it has a powerful cloud partner thanks to Oracle for Startup's discounts that let them run lots of simultaneous experiments and speed their modeling process. Meet the Startups, Asked Heart.io co-founder Utkar's Jane exactly what their technology seeks to achieve. We provide physicians with a non-invasive and point-of-care test
2: for coronary artery disease or plaque buildup in the artery supplying oxygen to your heart. And this is so physicians and patients alike don't have to wait for hours or days and dozens of tests to know if there's something wrong with their heart. And they can know right away.
3: Faster, better, more powerful, and affordable cloud technology might just be what the doctor ordered for your startup. Check out Oracle Startup Program at oracle.com/startup.
0: You know, if I can switch switch gears a little bit to the kind of um, perhaps the the pandemic in that you know it seemingly um means we're getting a bit closer or people you know uh, uh, i want to talk about the warm and fuzziness of community right and, and i think that there's kind of this um a trend towards you know more grassroots uh, founders thinking about building community around their product early on can you talk about um uh, more, less about the ecosystem kind of things but more around like? the connectedness and and what you found uh, the benefits to be in creating community um, from a, uh, from a founder perspective.
2: Sure. A couple of things. One, I believe uh, that this pandemic has caused us to accelerate uh, by five years and in, you know, eight months. So from where I sit, Uh, We're exiting 2025, about to go into 2026. The technology and the innovation uh, on one dimension has accelerated dramatically. And on another dimension, incumbent resistance to change is collapsing in many dimensions of our society. Um, A simple example uh, is telemedicine. Uh, and I don't know what telemedicine is like in Australia because I don't know what the Australian healthcare system is, but in the US, telemedicine literally made a decade's worth of progress in four weeks. When lockdown happened and doctors had to close their offices and couldn't practice medicine in their offices, the only place you could go for medical care was the hospital. If, unless you had COVID, the last place on planet Earth you wanted to go right now during that time period was the hospital and true for doctors and true for patients. And yet, patients have many, many issues they need to see a doctor for. And voila, within, you know, two to three weeks, uh, the U.S. government eliminated uh, all of the constraints on telemedicine technology and HIPAA, you know, just waived all the HIPAA HIPAA requirements, which most of them were dumb uh, and created a lot of friction in the system. Uh, doctors embraced telemedicine because they weren't seeing patients, and they wanted to see patients both because they're doctors and both they also wanted to make money. Uh, insurance companies, uh, which resisted telemedicine, sort of said in this moment, okay, we'll figure this out. Hospitals, many of whom have telemedicine infrastructure, said to the doctors who were not critical for COVID, stay home. Here's the telemedicine infrastructure, and spun it up and got it running. All of these things just sort of happened in this very, very rapid cycle. Another example would be remote learning. Um, in the U.S. from about March through the end of the school year, um, both college and university and K-12 through was remote learning. Two things happened. One is uh, we realized as a country how woefully unprepared we were for remote learning. Most remote learning stuff sucked while the technology supported remote learning, Teachers didn't know how to do it, students hated it. Doing Zoom all day long as a remote learning thing was not a particularly effective approach. Parents who were trying to do their jobs from home while taking care of their kids who were sort of in school was pretty miserable. The social dynamics between kids and parents and kids and other kids was pretty busted because of how inadequate it was. And at the same time, there are a number of companies that had massive adoption because they were the next generation of online learning or they provided functional capabilities that, you know, over the next three or four years, they would have made progress, but they made five years of progress in less than a year. So so you've seen this. I I use this as an example to then underscore the phenomena around community. Back, Chris, to your question, is that online and and online distributed, non-physical, place-based community was already happening in lots of different places around entrepreneurship. But um, place was uh, a constraint. So you had to physically be in a place. You had to physically go to geography. And you had to spend a lot of time in that construct. I'm not saying it's bad, but it's very inefficient on many dimensions. For somebody like me that's, you know, engages in geography in lots of different places around the world, it was exhausting. You know, I traveled a lot. And even when I was, wasn't traveling as much, when I'd go someplace, you know, like the, the dinner out and then spending, you know, to do something like this in person ended up being a lot versus to do something like this remotely. Now, people on this, you know, that are here, the, you know, the 65 or so people that are here might say, well, this isn't as satisfying, Brad, as if we got to spend the evening and we got to do one-on-one with, you know, absolutely true. But we're starting to learn how to make this effective. And we're starting to learn how to make this more connected in ways that has low friction, but people still make real progress. So I I think that in my historical view of startup communities had a very place-based construct. In the new book, there's some about remote and distributed. And I've learned a lot about rural or non-urban where you have to spread out over a greater distance and have more remote. And right now, like we're all living our lives in a very remote sense. And I actually think the element of community in a lot of places is accelerating. The inclusivity of people is accelerating the ability to get access uh, uh, to environments, people and contexts that you might not otherwise get access to. Um, so the sort of separation between people who are, you know, have resources and people who don't are diminishing some. Um, I think a lot of people's built-in biases about who they spend time with and where they spend time is shifting. Um, and and so there's a lot of positives coming out of it. Uh, there are plenty of negatives because as human beings, you know, there is a strong desire among many of us to be physically uh, engaged with each other um and you know i think that uh one of the end points for me uh, that i'm completely convinced of is there is no going back to january 2020 and so when i hear the phrase new normal i think it's just a phrase that's total bullshit because in, as innovators as entrepreneurs instead of looking for the quote new normal what you should what i encourage people to look for and what i'm looking for is whatever is in front of us as the future. And really incumbent dynamics that I'm not interested in that in this moment are very fragile, helping those incumbent dynamics disappear, which is what many, many entrepreneurs do as what they're doing as their business, they're coming up with something to disrupt something. Um, and at the other, uh, on the other side, embracing the characteristics of the environment we're in and, and taking advantage of building on and having emergent uh, from all of the things historically um, that have been good, but high friction, good, difficult to penetrate or overcome and try to figure out how to make them much, much better uh, over the next 20 years.
0: Any, If anyone's got any questions, please throw them in
2: there. Um...
0: Uh, we've got Brad here for for a few more minutes. Um, yeah,
2: seven, seven more minutes because not surprisingly at the top of the hour is the next
0: thing. Yeah, exactly. Another Zoom call. Um, uh, Brad, uh, I'm going to take this from Cameron T. Uh, uh, what would you say is the best way to stay connected with people remotely in terms of relationships in our networks and the world we are living in today?
2: I'm probably not the best person on planet Earth to ask about this. Um, I I think... Uh, I, I was talking with one of my partners at Foundry yesterday, and we hadn't done, we do group video calls together, but we hadn't done a one-on-one uh, in a couple of weeks. We're very, very close friends and, you know, lots of back and forth on Messenger and Slack and, and whatever, but just the two of us and not talking about work, just connecting and talking. And we hadn't done it in a while. And we did it. And he left me a message this morning. Um, really emotionally powerful. Appreciating the time we spent together, I felt the same way and, and, and played it back. But I, I think um, making sure that you're thoughtful and deliberate about spending time with people you love and people that you have close relationships with in this remote modality, versus just quick text messages and things like that. Um, second. Um, Spending time for yourself. I've had many moments in the last eight or nine months where I've been exhausted. And these are just very, very, very different ways of interacting. And so making sure you're taking care of yourself, I think, is important. Really important. Um, Next, uh, recognizing that none of us are at our best right now. No one on planet Earth is at their best. And so approaching things from that perspective recognizing you're making a lot of mistakes and you're doing things that are not at your best, but everybody that's interacting with you is too. um, I think there's a powerful behavioral shift when you show up and just recognize that. So when somebody else pisses you off or offends you or triggers you, um, uh, you know, being able to sort of absorb it, acknowledge it, communicate without reacting to it. And vice versa, when somebody else says, you know, that didn't make me feel good, or you see the body language and you're like, whoa, time out. Hey, hey, Chris, what did I say? I'm sh- I feel like I said something that really put you off just then. And I'm sorry if I said something, but help me understand what it was, because I wasn't meaning to. I was just trying to give you some constructive feedback or you look like you really disagreed with what I'm saying. Please tell me uh, what you disagree with, even if there's hierarchy. Like, I think it's so important to weave that into what we're doing. And then the last, the last comment, and I'll I'll, I'll pig, I, I want to build off of, before it scrolls off the screen, what, what uh, Kelly wrote. I think that um, uh, what we call now social media uh, is incredibly evil. Um, I think that there are magnificent and incredibly powerful benefits of things like Facebook and Twitter. Um, but I think that there are foundationally evil things in that that are really instantiated in this moment, and it's it's important to process that as individuals, um, understanding how manipulated we are, not just in our behavior, but our thinking uh, by, by these very, very pervasive platforms that when we're online all the time are natural things for us to continually engage with. Um, and, and modulating them in a way that's constructive is part of this because engaging with other people through Facebook or Twitter, Snapchat, you know, whatever, Instagram, TikTok, like it is a totally different, or corporate, corporate environment, Slack, Discord, uh, you know, Telegram, WhatsApp, it's a completely different engagement modality than engaging with people one-on-one or in groups physically, and making sure that you don't lose virtually many of the positive characteristics of that because you get absorbed in the communication through these other channels. Um, just say it, I don't I don't have a Facebook account, I deleted it uh, a while ago. Um, when COVID hit, I turned it back on and thought it might be useful. And, I uh, recently deleted it again because I wasn't even looking at it. Twitter, I, I don't look at Twitter. Uh, I do broadcast on Twitter because I have a very big following and I broadcast things that I think are interesting. And if somebody direct messages me on Twitter, I'll respond to it. Um, but I, I really have have found that um, my ability to learn, think, develop, engage and interact with other people um, do not come from those uh, those vehicles. So just be thought, I mean, I'm not saying don't do them. I'm not saying they should disappear, but the incorporate a broader set of thinking into how you're approaching it. If you're serious about building and developing community.
0: Have okay, we got time for one more or are you, you run late?
2: One more then I'm gone.
0: All right. Um, I, I sorry, Kelly. I definitely wanted to talk about the eco chamber. I think it's really a, a great question, but I'm going to take this one. I want to end on the feeling positive. Um, I got Andre here. If you're a young startup community, fledgling ecosystem with a desire to get some momentum, um, is it, is it, do you think it's focusing on a particular sector, supporting a bunch of startups? What's, what's the go-to?
2: There is no go-to. Just do what you are obsessed about. And, and you know, it's a, a, a Yoda said it best, you know, do or do not, there is no try. The awesome thing about startup communities is there is no CEO. You don't have to ask permission. You don't have to get approval. You don't have to sign a form. And as an individual, um, if you put energy into things that you're obsessed about, that you're passionate about, you don't have to act benevolent, uh, you know, benevolently or altruistically. Uh, you can act in your self-interest. Um, but it, you know, for those of you that have heard and know Give First, You need to be willing to put energy into the system without knowing what you'll get back. Again, it's not altruism. You'll get back. You just don't know when, from whom, over what time period and what magnitude and what consideration. And that's how you start. Just find stuff that you care about and start doing stuff and listen and learn and try things and be willing to make mistakes and make new friends and don't be afraid of uh being open about what you're learning and when you screw up own it uh and when somebody you know and when somebody embraces you or gives you compliment uh even if you don't really know how to be graceful about it like me, who doesn't really know how to take compliments that well, just like learn how to uh you know learn how to get you know uh get emotional benefit from it uh and and just do thank you for having. Me from around the world, especially Australia. And Chris, thanks for doing
0: this. Thanks a lot, everyone. And thanks, Brad. Appreciate it.
2: Thank you for tuning in. To keep up to
0: date with all things Startup Grind, visit us at startupgrind.com or join us at any event in a city near you. Until next time, chase the vision and keep hustling.